Hello and welcome to I Don't Know the Podcast, episode 35, The Berkshire UFO Incident. This isn't a normal episode. The Berkshire UFO Incident was an episode of the latest season of Unsolved Mysteries on Netflix. It tells what happened on September 1st, 1969 in Berkshire County, Massachusetts. On that night, there were multiple UFO sightings reported by an incredible amount of witnesses. People called the cops and the local radio station. But the Unsolved Mysteries episode mainly covers the abduction of Tom Reed, aged nine, and Melanie Kirchdorfer, who was 14 at the time. What happened to them? How has this affected them? Is there more to this story? Well, this week, I do know the answers to those questions. It was a Sunday evening and I was trying to come up with ideas for an episode. I couldn't find any inspiration, no matter how much wine I drank. Then I remembered I had recently friended Tom Reed on Facebook and he also appeared on a friend's show, Ghost Hunting in New England, so I decided to message him. And after I harassed him while he was trying to watch football, he agreed to appear on the show. He even got me in touch with Melanie, who also agreed to come on. We scheduled a Zoom meeting, and it all went from there. I must warn you that, since it was recorded over Zoom, the sound quality is a bit iffy. And for me, we started at midnight due to the time difference, and I had imbibed some adult beverages. But anyway, without further ado, I proudly present I Don't Know the Podcast's biggest interview to date, Tom Reed and Melanie Kirchdorfer. car just kind of lit up. I mean, I could see the dashboard, I could see the floorboard. First, I was told that this didn't happen. It was embedded into my head. Melanie was gone the same time we were gone. And, you know, we used to, uh, we had a friend that would steal cigarettes from their mom. We're here. What happened to host? I can't hear Keith. I think we lost Keith. Okay, so on this episode of I Don't Know the Podcast, I cannot believe the coup that I've managed to pull off and get two giants of the paranormal world, Tom Reed and Melanie Kochdorfer of the Sheffield UFO incident. Actually, it's Kochdorfer. As I said earlier, it was late and I was tired, but I do apologize for getting your name wrong. 
thank you so much for coming on guys i can't thank you enough absolutely thanks for having us so of course everyone is going to know you from the latest season of unsolved mysteries um what's what's it been like since that's been out the uh the incident in in sheffield um has been the subject of about a dozen uh shows already but uh, from discovery channel to science channel to travel um, but it really was uh, Unsolved Mysteries that really uh, showed that this wasn't just about one family, that it was about a community and about a lot of people. And um, uh-huh. H and Aliens also uh, keyed on the 250-some-odd witnesses and and showed, uh, you know, the governor who uh, signed the uh, documentation, you know, uh, admitting or, or um, you know, uh, claiming or, or uh, introducing this case into United States history as historically true for the state of Massachusetts. Um, as far as Unsolved Mysteries goes, um, they really focused on the flight path and they focused on a lot of people that uh, had never spoken out before, or at least publicly. And um, for that, I think it, uh, it brought a lot of uh, needed attention uh, to, the, to the case as a whole because it did not only you know, be seen in Sheffield or Barrington, but it was seen in Pittsfield and Lenox and Lee and Stockbridge, and it went all the way to Connecticut. And uh, this is really the first time that 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 uh, part of the incident uh, was really told on a national level. And for that, I, I think they did a good job. Yeah, it's, it's something that, um, it's a case that I wasn't particularly aware of being in the UK here. And um, of course, with everyone sitting at home all night and all day they're watching everything on netflix so I was, everyone was so happy when unsolved mysteries came back and um yeah but what got me about it was the over 40 witnesses people calling the cops it was over 200 radio station over 200 yeah so there's another thing i want to clear up you probably read that in a newspaper somewhere right 40 witnesses yeah actually i read it online even i'm not old enough to still buy a newspaper the 40 witnesses were when the monument was installed. There were four, about 40 witnesses from 1969 that showed up when the monument was unveiled. There was over 250 witnesses to the event. That's, yeah, that's, um, that's quite a lot, isn't it? Yeah, it is quite a lot. And, but it was also seen, um, like I said, it was seen by uh, Melanie's in there. Probably, what, Melanie, eight or nine different uh, towns or local cities? Well, we've been contacted by people that saw it in Lenox and Pittsfield and then Stockbridge, several people, Great mm-hmm. Barrington, you know Came someone in Connecticut. Oh, we heard um, Hudson, New York. Yeah. Hillsdale, New York. And that's the thing, right. Melanie, um, you were talking before we um, started this that you've, people have been in contact with you that would never have come forward before. That's right. People have contacted me and told me stories of incidences that had happened to them before. And then Tom and I, we had swapped notes of stories that happened to him before the 69 incident as well. So this had been going on before 1969. This was not just a one-time thing for both Tom and I and for other people. They're just afraid to come forward, other people. If we could just recap on what did actually um, happen that that day, September 1st, 1969. Now I've had time to think about it, I probably should have asked that at the beginning. 
Um, if, if you want to go first, Tom, um, what was your experience of that? You were um, nine years old, right? Yeah, well, I, yeah, with nine, almost ten. Um, mm -hmm. What made uh, 1969 stand out was that it was a holiday. It was Labor Day. And I don't know if your listeners know that. So there were a, a lot of people outside, you know, barbecues, you know, hanging out with the kids, throwing the ball around. There were there were get-togethers, family get-togethers. And there were also um, little events held by the towns. You know, I was actually riding in a horseshoe that day. So there were large groups of people that were outside. And it was a beautiful night. It was kind of hot, but it was, a, it was unseasonably warm that night. But there were a lot of people in groups outside that normally did not hang out together. So you had people that were seeing these crafts or lights in the sky that weren't just friends supporting one another. They're, we were talking large groups of people that were seeing this as, as you know, um, for the first time or some for the second time, but in, in massive groups. And so um, to, uh, to get to what happened with us, we were leaving our diner. We had a, we had a little diner in town called the Sheffield Green yeah. and, um, or the Village Green. And um, we were leaving the Village Green, and we were taking a dirt road home over an old covered bridge. And as we entered the bridge, uh, my grandmother, who was uh, in the passenger seat, had noticed a odd bleed of light coming through the bottom planks of the bridge. And I think at first they thought maybe it was the headlights because it was just dark. And, uh, but it was more light than it should have been. It didn't look right. And as we exited the bridge, I was giving my brother candy, and my grandmother turned around to say to me, don't give it to him, because it was a fireball. It was big cinnamon fireballs, and she thought he could choke. And so, you know, don't give it to your younger brother. He could choke on it. And she's the first one to notice the sphere that was about four times the size of a Volkswagen Beetle. And it looked like it was a solid light. It was like if you could illuminate a cue ball from a pool table. It was not clear through it. It was, it was a solid, semi, like a two-watt bulb, but like a cue ball. It was it solid. It real body to it. Uh, Sharp edges to it, yeah. yeah. And I looked over, and it was actually right outside my window because I was behind the driver. I was behind my mother. My mother was driving. My grandmother was in the passenger seat. My brother was to my right. So I had the best view of it at that point. And we were only going about 15 miles an hour because it was a bumpy dirt road. It still is to this day. It's like a single lane dirt road. And so I'm looking out, out of the window, and sure enough, um, it, it rose slightly, and then these rods of light fired from one side of it and the other side of it. And they were like very focused, uh, almost, again, solid-looking rods of light. I say they were light because they look like light, but they were solid, like white poles. And... I only remember a few of those. I think when Ancient Aliens did the show, they showed a bunch of them, and they showed it uh -huh. moving away. That looked like an ice cream cone. It didn't look like that at all. It, it actually had a couple rods of shot down, and we were probably maybe 10 or 15 feet further down the road when they either dissolved or went back into it. I don't really know, but they were just gone, you know? And then the sphere kind of moved in the direction of our car. It was behind a line of trees over what's a cornfield today. And we kind of lost sight of it. As so we were driving, and the sphere, uh, you know, was off to the driver's side, and then it just got caught behind this line of trees, and we didn't see it anymore. But my brother and I were looking for it, and we saw another one off to the right. There were three moving parts that night. And so there was an orange one, very much like the white one, but it looked like a sun. It had a moving center to it, like a wave of something moving. 
Um, I kind of described it a little bit on Unsolved Mysteries, how it just kind of had a, a roll to it somehow. It, was, it, it had different uh, colors within it, like orange and yellow. And looking at it reminded me of a sun, you know? And so we, we saw that one very low to the water. They are both over water and the Housatonic River, and it kind of wrapped around, and that was right at the corner of where it turned. And this one was now over the cornfield. As we went down further, my mother found a clearing, and there's a telephone pole near this clearing where you can pull the car up a little further, like maybe utility trucks were using it at one point. Yeah. And so she kind of pulled off to the right, and we were looking over the open field, and we never saw the, the white sphere again. That was the last time we really saw it. And so we're looking in the in the field, and in on Unsolved Mysteries, I said, you know, we all like, what was that? You know, that was the feeling we got, like, wow, what is that? And it looked like a giant turtle shell, about a hundred yards in length, and the skin of it, or the shell of it, or the top of it, had like gold color in it, and a, a pewter, and a and an orange, and it was like if you took a a piece of metal and took a blowtorch to it, how it has different colors within the metal. Oh that's yeah, and, they, of, they, and they, but they're sort of melded in together, but moving around. That's kind and, of what it yeah. like, but it was only on the right side of it. So we clearly saw the right side of it, and then you could see the outline of the rest of it. And, and you know, it was kind of it was dark, but it was you know a little bit of moonlight and that kind of thing. You could still see it, but the the right side was quite prominent. You could really make it out. And then it kind of just slowly that color diminished as it went to the left. But there was also a little bit of a white glow underneath it. So a lot of people think that we saw it because of the white light underneath it. That uh -huh. really wasn't what brought our attention to it. It was like this goldish thing hovering over the, the cornfield. And so we're sitting in the car. It's, you know, it's off. Not, I mean, the car is idling, but we're parked. And the um, all of a sudden, it was like we, you know, we're staring at it. The, you know, uh, we felt like we were... Uh, you know, my mother says the pressure change, which is true. It was like being underwater. Like you could feel like, uh, you know, like, uh, I, don't, I don't know, I'm muted. You know, like everything was muted. Mm -hmm. And there was a tapping sound. And I used to say it sounded like stones hitting underneath our fender wall of the car. Um, it was like, a t -t 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 like that. Um, I, I thought it was stones, like, as we just came to a stop, like, caught the fender underneath the fender wall. Um, that was the only thing I could, uh, that's the only thing I, it reminded me of. And, um, and then all of a sudden the, uh, the, the car just kind of lit up. I mean, I could see the dashboard, I could see the floorboards and I could see everything. It wasn't like a dome light. It was like every, it was like bright, like everything was just lit up, like, like lights everywhere. I mean, it was not a blinding light in your eyes or anything, but everything was just like, bam. And then there was this, uh, eruption of like, Cadians and crickets and frogs and the light went out and it was just like that was the last thing we remember from the car it was like everything just changed for a moment um we were hit with it this light it went out everything came back for a second like it was normal and then we were no longer in the vehicle anymore it's kind of the last thing i remember wow and and melanie your your recollection of that night we're, we're my recollection of that night is, um, well, my story is pretty bizarre because I didn't, first, I was told that this didn't happen. It was embedded into my head for years that this did not happen, that it was all in my head and my parents and my family. 
even though they were with me. But <laughs> in the meantime, Tom knew through the, the ufologist in 2013, was it, Tom? In Oregon? Yeah, yeah, Portland, Oregon. I was at McMinnville. Yes. McMinnville, they were telling me that it was all in my head and it never happened, although my whole childhood I had been experiencing this and being punished, that I was crazy. They called me trouble, okay? My sister knew what was going on, but uh, I was trouble. And uh, so then about two years, we're going on to three years now, I get a phone call from my mother that I needed to go to the historical society and tell them my story about the UFO episode incident. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You told me this never happened. It was all in my head. And she goes, oh no, it really did happen. You need to go talk about it. In the meantime, her and my, my brother are going on talking to people about my story. And well, <laughs> it's partly their story too, but they're telling people this story and telling me that it never happened. And so finally I said to my mother, I can't go and talk to people about this until I find out, you know, I remember everything that you told me never happened. So I had to go to a PTSD specialist for two months to have everything figured out. So I went for hypnosis to a PTSD specialist and you cannot even be hypnotized for the first, after the first four weeks, you have to be prepared for it, for what you're going to remember. So I went to a specialist. I remembered it all, but I needed to just have some therapy because of what I was going to find out. And I mean, I'm furious with my family for what they did to me because of what I experienced and how they lied to me. But needless to say, my sister and I, Janie, she and I, we did not even want to go that night. We were, we had to work that weekend at the Mahewi Theater. We cleaned the Mahewi Theater. I was 12. She was 14 years of age. She was a teenager. I was a preteen, but we were wild little kids. I mean, we weren't bad kids. We were just normal little teenagers. And we wanted to go smoke cigarettes over on Penny Rock. And, you know, we used to, uh, we had a friend that would steal cigarettes from their mom and we wanted to go and meet up at Penny Rock and smoke cigarettes. And my parents weren't having it. They wanted us to get in the car and go get ice cream. So we went to get ice cream. And uh, then we went up to Lake Mansfield. We were sitting up at Lake Mansfield and the next thing we knew, my dad goes, holy shit. And we looked up and there was this huge, huge craft. And it was like this brilliant red orange craft in the middle. There were different colors, but it was predominantly flaming red, orangish, orangish red. And it's like almost a bronze color. And it was huge. It like took up the lake. It was so huge. And we all started screaming. And my, I, I remember smelling wool and I asked my mom, I said, why did I smell wool? And she said, well, it's because your dad used to keep uh, an army blanket in the back of the car. And Janie and I, we were crying. We had our head down on the back seat crying and I knew they were coming for me because they always did when I was little. 
And I was screaming and crying. And my dad said, we're going to, I have to chase this thing. I have to chase it. And I was like, no, dad, no. And my mother was going, Joey, no, no, no. And then the next thing I remember is just being levitated over uh, Berkshire Heights. That's, and you can't move when this happens. You cannot move. The only thing you can move is your eyes. You're totally trapped in your body. It's just your eyes that can be moved. And then after that, all I can remember is being on a table and the same thing. And the room was like a metallic, almost like a glass type room, a metal glass room, if that makes sense to you. Uh And that had like a, a red to a reddish orange aura to it. And after that, I don't remember anyone being in there or anything that they did to me. But then from there, I just remember being in a room with children. I did not know any of the children. They said that I knew children. They were classmates. I did not know these children. They were people I did not know. And uh, they just disappeared one by one by one. And then I woke up on the beach at Lake Mansfield and I still don't know what time it was because I did not have a watch on. And that would be the last thing I would be interested in is what time it was. I woke (laughs) up on the beach lying down and I had horrible stomach pains. I had to walk home. I remember what I was wearing. I had a lime green shirt on, this sweatshirt that I loved. It was like short three-quarter sleeve sweatshirt. It was like your favorite old sweater. Cut off jeans and bare feet. And I walked home and my mom always locked the door. The door was unlocked. And to this day, her and my sister keep saying they don't remember how they got home that night. They still do not remember driving home that night. I think the moral of that story is uh, don't smoke cigarettes when you're underage, huh? No, the moral (laughs) is, is we probably should have gone to Penny Rock. (laughs) You should have gone smoking cigarettes. (laughs) um, If you rewind a bit there. If you rewind a bit there, um, you said this wasn't the first time this has happened to you. And um, Tom, I believe it wasn't the first time anything like this has happened to you either. No. I don't think that was covered in Unsolved Mysteries too much. None of that. Um, Yeah, one of the things I want to mention, if I can, real quick, um, just to the, uh, I mentioned the shell or the skin of the craft had like Uh uh, orange and the different colors in it, which, you know, is not something I used to talk about very much, but Melanie nailed it when we first started talking because she noticed that too. There's a lot of things that I don't say when I do interviews because it's a way for me to know who's being honest and who isn't. Sure. And a lot of what Melanie says are things that I've never really mentioned before publicly, like the, like that orangey red shell to it. And so when we started talking and she started mentioning these things, um, I was like just floored, you know, because I've never actually met Melanie in person, you know. Uh, no, no, but we've never she used met to each other. We've never met each other, um, but uh, we're good friends now, even though we've never met. But yeah. she's yeah. Email yeah. and text messaging. Yeah, yeah. Do some shows together. But um, used to go into our, our family's diner before 1969. 
and Melanie had had uh, experiences prior to 1969, as we did. And one of the things I would say that my mother, um, she had her first experience in 1954 in Gooseneck, Maine. And uh, because of that, when we first had our, or as, as children, my brother and I um, had an experience, it was 1966. And um, in 1967 was when my mother found my brother and I outside on, um, of our house and I was placid and I was staring at my brother and my brother was looking back at me. And, um, and that involved a, a big blue ring and a flash in our bedroom and where I also felt like I was wrapped in saran wrap and then I felt inverted and, and then, you know, it was just like hit by an ocean wave and then I, I couldn't really move, but maybe my head and my eyes a little bit and I remember looking at a clock and um, that was all I could see and, and um, you know, uh, it was very difficult. My, my brother remembers uh, uh, some strange things that like too. He used to sleep with a little tugboat and used to eat out animal crackers and where we found ourselves, um, my brother still had that little toy that he used to bathe with, you know, take in the bathtub. And he was also had a club foot. He remembers a lot of attention being given to his club foot. So when we first started talking about this, it was in our diner because we would go for breakfast and my mother would run a tab and the kids would come in and, and eat at the restaurant. And you could kind of see the children that were pairing off, you know, those who had had an experience and, and those that um, found more humor or more fun in making fun of the other kids. You know, there was a division there. And, um, and so my mother would uh, befriend a lot of the, the younger kids or the children in town and, and talk to them because we had an experience and she knew it to be true. And, and some of the other kids could not talk to their family or talk to friends because they'd be made fun of. And so that's kind of what our diner was kind of known for is like this safe haven. You know, it's kind of like you could talk about anything inside the diner, but don't talk about it outside the diner. You know, kind of like church where it's okay to hear voices in your head when you're in church and talk to God, but you don't, you don't mention it in aisle five at Walmart, right? <laughs> because it's perceived so differently. So that was kind of like what happened with our diner. It was uh, like a safe haven for the locals. And then after uh, 1969, um, it was kind of like, uh, I don't know, it's, it's kind of put a bow around it. So many other people had an experience and it became kind of um, a known thing. And, um, but I think the, um, the disappointment or the, the heartache that my mother experienced with, you know, the uh, picking on her children and, and um, you know, it just kind of took the wind out of her sails with regard to the diner. And so we moved to Great Barrington and, uh, and I went to Monument Mountain High School where I think you went, Melanie. Right. And, um, and uh, in, in the late 70s, we decided to move and that was really what took place there as far as what happened earlier. Before we started recording, I was chatting with Melanie, and she told me that electronics tend to act weird when she's around. And this could have been one of those times as my usually reliable microphone stopped working. Are you there? I'm here. We're here. What happened to our host? I can't hear Keith. I think we lost Keith. <laughs> Did Jesus. we lose you, Keith? Oh, my God. Can you hear me? Oh, there you are. But you're low. You need to turn up the volume. 
I don't see, see you either. Can, can you hear me now? Now we can there hear you. you. Okay, I don't that's see better. You. Are you there? You can see me? No, I we can't. We can see you. What the heck? I can't see you. Melanie. It's oh, me. <laughs> well, that was weird. I lost time again. <laughs> I was telling Keith, I said, I, I have a real hard time with computers and I shut things down. I was telling him about our last interview we did together that yeah. I had to get off so you could finish. Yeah, and here we are again. Yeah. That was weird because it looked completely normal from my screen. It's Melanie. Yeah. <laughs> Come on now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Every time. Thankfully, power was restored and we could continue. We talked about Tom moving to Sheffield from New York and how after the incident, him and his family were ostracized by certain members of the community. But let's face it, the late 60s weren't the most tolerant of times. No, it was, it was a different time. And uh, it, I mean, a lot has... Uh, the thing that I find interesting is that back in in the 60s, this happened to so many different children. I mean, there was a lot of kids that saw something or were involved in something, and they used to draw these sketches. And, and when I went to Sheffield Center School, I would walk into class and you would see all these drawings from these children of green men from Mars or, or crafts or whatever. All along, the there were, you know, the lip for a chalkboard where you place the chalk, yeah. you know, on a chalk school they were taped all to the lip of the chalk where the chalk would go and there were dozens of these sketches from children you know around our age within a year or two of our age that had seen something and this was in like an art class you know like a fourth grade art class and so it wasn't like you hear so many like even unsolved mysteries had said or, or whatever we never talked about it that's not true. We've been talking about it my whole life. We had a restaurant that was the voice for this. <laughs> it was talked about constantly. It just wasn't talked about outside the diner so much. And it seems this small American town was really divided by this. Um, like I said, there was a division of, of people there. There were the Melanies, the Reeds, you know, and mm -hmm. those kids that kind of had, you know, had been exposed to something that they really didn't know what to make of it at the time or, or had questions and, you know, had others that were poking fun maybe, but you knew something, you were part of something extraordinary and you knew it, but you weren't sure what to make of it. You're confused, you're young, but there was this group of kids that made up this, you know, this um, part of town. And, um, and then there were those who couldn't, fathom anything like that. Whether the locals liked it or not, the Sheffield UFO incident was inducted into American history as true. And while Tom and Melanie haven't actively courted publicity, they have featured in numerous TV shows and magazine articles. But one of the things that happens is that they don't act, they don't accurately portray what took place. You know, they're always looking for the wow. They want to add wow to it, you know? Yeah, the sensational one. And they leave out the important stuff, you know? Like, um, if you watch Agent Aliens, they show the sphere that we saw, but they don't mention the other two pieces. If you look at Discovery Channel's uh, take on it or hour-long special on it, 
they show the craft going over our car, this massive craft going over our car. That never happened, you know? So sometimes I say to myself, why do I bother doing the shows? Because it does more harm than good. So all I do when I do a presentation somewhere, I show what didn't happen. Yeah, then I have to talk about, well, this is what happened. And it just gets silly. And um, Unsolved Mysteries, you know, I think that they, for what they showed, they did a good job. They didn't really, nothing was really taken out of context, you know? Yeah. Uh, Unsolved Mysteries did do a top-notch job, in my opinion. But Tom does have some issues with the flight path they covered on the show. And he also gives me more details that weren't covered on Netflix. Okay, she was in a car, a loaded, a full car of people, okay? Five. And we, yeah, we're five. And we were in a car, you know, uh, loaded with family. She was at a lake, and we were near water. So we were both in similar situations, and we were only, what, a couple miles away from each other, maybe maybe three or something. Mm -hmm. um, and she, Melanie was gone the same time we were gone. And so um, I've always thought there was a, for a long time. We were gone. You were gone a lot longer than I was. And cause we got, we found ourselves back in the car just before 11 because we had gone back to silks and they were still open. And again, my grandmother, I, I, I keep forgetting to mention this when we, and I remember a lot of things from that night. I remember this glass wall, you know, that I mentioned to Melanie a long time ago, um, an apparatus lowering from the ceiling, a, a large open uh, area with some markings on the floor. I remember being grabbed really hard on my left arm. I remember like boiling water going through my arms, which I don't talk about often. Whoa. And, uh, and um, you know, an insect type thing. Um, and, uh, being on, sitting on a table and, and uh, carts that look stainless, almost like what I remembered uh, from school that used to put the slide projector on. And then um, it was harsh. I remember feeling calm sometimes and then uncomfortable and panicked the next. And it was like a roller coaster um, of, of feelings. I was like, you know, scared, and calm, and scared, and calm. Um, and then when we got back or found ourselves back in the vehicle my grandmother was now in the driver's seat and she hadn't been driving my mother was in the passenger seat i was in the same spot my brother's head was on my right leg and um the car was off the lights were off yeah your the grandmother ignition. barely drove did, did she uh... yeah she didn't she had a driver's license but she didn't have a car tom's experience on board the craft would be terrifying for anybody but he was only nine years old at the time. The incident really, um, really was different than anything else we had experienced because we had experiences prior to that. And it was much more uh, surreal, whereas the 69 was different. 69 was harsh. Um, it was uh, rough. It was very, uh, in my opinion, uh, it was very uh, uh, orchestrated and, um, and almost uh, had a, governmental feel to it you know i this was is why it's like something you were being prepared for before or finally i ask a good question you know there's a lot of i look at that's a good question because a lot of the time talk i talk about that a lot yeah and yeah. it was always over water it was always over the housatonic river 
or there was always water involved. There was the reservoir that was near um, September, always in September. Really? Yeah. Now, well, it, it was pretty much year round for me when I lived up on Russell Street, though. That was a year round thing on Russell Street. But East Mountain, when that was up on East Mountain, were you got were you sliding when you were up there and you had the incident on East Mountain? No, what what like in a like later on in this like seventy four or whatever it was. Um, I was with a bunch of last time I saw anything in Great Barrington or Great Barrington area, it was with uh, I was with uh, Joe and Steve Hosier and a bunch of other people and um, up near Dewey School near the park and. Uh, we were all the kids from school were walking through it, you know, through that area, going home the race stringers and everything. And we would just watch this orange ball, just like what we saw in 69, coming at, at us. And then it took a quick 90 degree turn, went right down towards the park, rose up over the homes and dove into the, into the woods. And all the kids were like running over behind where Lloyd Love used to live. And um, that's where the reservoir is. So it's always, there's water always involved. Always water. And, and again, this you're talking about 30 or 40 kids from, um, you know, Searle School that were walking home that saw it. I mean, so, so to say no one ever talked about it was nonsense. I don't know why we, why anyone would say, oh, we never talked about it. were crazy. I, I had a girl call me up after the Netflix show. She lived two streets down from me, once again, along the river. And she said, you know, my sister, her sister and her are the same age difference of, as my sister and I, 19 months, basically 19 months apart, the Irish twins. And um, she said to me, you know, my sister, she used to have the same thing happen to her that would happen to you. Or she didn't know that it was happening to me, but it was happening to me. She said that there was a little person that would come into her room this little gray man would come into my room at night and levitate me out down the river. It was horrible. And my sister, I would come back and my sister would protect me. I would get into bed and spoon with her because my parents would punish me. I actually got locked in the basement one night. It was so horrible. <laughs> they wouldn't believe me. My mother found me sleepwalking before coming back. My father put locks on the attic door. I was so traumatized and frightened. But this girl, she called me up after Netflix, and she told me that the same thing was happening to her sister. But she didn't know that it was happening to me because she hadn't heard about it from Netflix yet. And she lived two streets over. And when she oh, wow. ever told me that this was happening to her, the hair stood up on my arms because it was happening at the same time it was happening to me. But her parents believed her and they moved her out of Great Barrington into Stockbridge because they wanted it to stop. And it did stop. And I think it stopped for her because her parents started watching out for her and they believed her. But because my parents didn't believe me, it continued. Well, she probably wasn't trying to hide smoking from them. So they're more, more ready to believe no, her. No, she continued to smoke. Oh, she smoked she as well. continued to smoke. What's wrong with the kids in that area? While I don't condone children smoking, I'm sure they probably look cool. 
we get down to talking about why so many different children in the area were having these experiences. Tom tells me that every one of them has O blood and that their body temperatures run lower than normal. Could that be a connection? You know, we've, we've tried to look at what and why. Like earlier, um, I think you alluded to the fact, you know, why you? You know, was it personal or was it the wrong place at the wrong time, the right place at the right time, right? Yeah, so, I, I, I did want to ask yeah, why you thought it was you. And that, I mean, that, that could be one of the factors right there. But, there's something very I mean, different. you've got to think about it all the time. It's... Yeah, I try to be rational about it, too. But mm -hmm. um, Melanie has had multiple experiences. She went to our diner long before 69. Um, you know, her body runs at two degrees below normal. She's, you know, blood type O. I'm blood type O. My body runs two degrees below normal. You know, we had experiences before 1969. You know, it's just there's a... Um, you know, I look for patterns, you know. The focus from the media for Tom and Melanie has mostly been on 1969, but they have had experiences after that year. Tom has witnessed many different craft in the Sheffield area with multiple witnesses, and Melanie has also. But I did have one more other experience when I was an adult. I would say I was in my 40s, uh, probably my early 40s. I woke up at nighttime. I had a, I, I used to be the intercultural student exchange person where I would place children into different homes for uh -huh. the high school. And I believe it was my Dutch student that I had at the time that was staying here. Um, I had so many kids from around the world stay at my house. It's hard to keep up which one was here at the time, but I believe it was Joey. Um, and I remember waking up, like, I still sleep. When I sleep, which is very rare for me because I, I still have nightmares, very, really bad nightmares. So I sleep sitting up with three pillows and my dogs because I'm scared to death to sleep with these nightmares. And this particular night, there was this bright light around the house. It was so bright. It was as if somebody just turned all these lights on. I mean, when you see these lights, you, I can't, I mean, Tom knows, he gets it. You can't even explain how bright it is. And I tried to wake my husband, Henry, up. I tried to wake the animals up. I tried to wake my Joey. I tried to wake my son up. I could not wake anyone up. I couldn't yeah. wake anyone up. And I, I, I just got, I went right back under the covers and I said, here it is. It's going to happen all over again. And then I don't remember anything after that. Oh, wow. I don't remember anything. It was so scary. That was my last incident. And after that, that was the last time anything ever happened. I think that you block things out, they erase things. I know that the hypnotist that I worked with wanted me to continue, but for now I saw enough, I'm afraid to continue. Uh -huh. Maybe I will continue in the future. It's really scary, it's really frightening. I can imagine. I mean, after I would leave there, I would call my sister up <laughs> and I would start singing songs that we would sing as little children and she would be like, I can't believe that you can remember that. I could remember the, 
the chenille bedspreads in our bedroom. And she was like, you're really creeping me out now. This is creepy. <laughs> it, you, it's like watching a film. It, it's scary. It's very frightening. So these experiences have really um, affected your adult life in, in some way. It affected my adult life because I have no relationship with my family right now, I, except for my sister. My sister uh -huh. watched me back. I love my sister. But I have a lot of anger now, too, with my parents because of the lies that took place. And I remembered what they did to me because I didn't even want to go to school. I would leave to go to school and I would come back and hide on the back porch. I was so frightened of everything. I was scared. I was so afraid of everything. While it's been tough for Melanie due to lack of support from her parents, Tom managed to turn his experiences into something good. Now, after this happened in 69, I uh, told my parents I wanted a camera, you know, because if I ever saw this again, I was going to get a picture of it. And um, sure enough, I got a camera for the holidays. And, uh, and uh, it actually uh, drove my career because um, I, I became a, you know, I was in the photography club in school and I ended up becoming a fashion photographer for Sage Island stores. And I ended up you know, uh, working in South Beach, you know, and, and um, opened up a modeling agency. So it actually steered my career a little bit. Uh, I don't know what I would have done if I hadn't gotten that first camera, what I did. Um, I, I have no idea what I would have done. And um, at the same time, um, I was very affected by it too, um, in a different way, because Melanie didn't have the support mechanism that we did, you know. Yeah. So we had that solitude. We had that camaraderie with family and support. Uh, which I feel very sad that she didn't have any of that because that's painful. Um, so, you know, I had the problems with other people, but we had a closely knit family where she didn't even have that. And Tom did become a top model agency guy, but it still did affect his childhood. I was struggling with this at 10 years old. And you're questioning you know? everything. Everything. And, I, I, and other kids are out there throwing a Frisbee around, and I'm like, I find that extremely boring, right? I'm like, I'm trying to think of all this complex stuff and you want to play ball? I'm like, ah, you know, what do I want to do that for? It's boring. I, I mean, I was just in a craft, you know what I mean? You got to throw a baseball around. I got, I'm trying to, you know, make sense of everything. And you probably got an aversion to Frisbees after that as well, haven't you? Actually, I got a Frisbee line for my park. Oh, yeah. Actually, I do. Um, disc golf. You know, this golf course. Oh, the making, ultimate Frisbee. Yeah, they're making me one. Yeah. yeah, I got... Another plus. Tom mentioned a park there, and there is indeed a park with benches and a monument celebrating entry into the U.S. history books. But, now, um, about the monument. Now, the, yeah, the, there's yeah. been a lot of people that aren't really happy with it. Well, That's not true. That's no? not true either. No. No. Um, actually... This is, this is what upsets me about all the media. Let me ask you this. What is your understanding of the monument? I, I I'm interviewing you. <laughs> I thought it was there to commemorate the, um, the Sheffield UFO incident was empty. Okay. Who, put it, who do you think put it there? Who put it there? Wasn't it the State Department or? The town. Yeah. Yes, the town put it there. Um, now, a lot of the people think that I put it there or somebody put it there without permission. Um, the town actually, the Department of Public Works 
put it where it is. And then later on, um, decided that they didn't want it there. So a certain person who was involved in that installation of the monument went public with the papers and said that I put it there. And so it put a bad taste in people's mouths. It wasn't the monument. It was, well, we thought the town put that there. Now you're telling us an individual put that there. So it created, you know, some hard feelings between people like, okay, wh what really happened? And it's um, not like it's a Confederate general or something like that, is it? Or no, but if you're, if you're, um, I know, right? And it actually that was installed, it it out it was installed around the time all the other monuments were being ripped down. <laughs> <laughs> all these big monuments are being torn down and we're getting the UFO monument. Um, but anyway, so to, to, to wrap this up, the monument was never on town property. It's never been on town property. It's always been on private property. Um, but there was an issue with a rite of passage through the private property, and the monument could have infringed on that. And because there was this confusion about who put it there, um, you know, uh, Nadine and Rhonda with the town of Sheffield decided to have it removed. And so that's it's never come back. However, the park is still there. The message is still there. It seems to me that people in small towns have way too much time on their hands to worry about shit that doesn't matter. And it's a shame that the monument isn't currently there. But as Tom said, the park is, and even better, Melanie's husband has donated an incredible UFO-shaped picnic table. Um, we don't do this for money. I'm not selling a book. I'm not we selling a paid for anything that we've done. No, we, we've no, we don't get as a matter of fact, it costs us money, costs me money every month to keep the park open. And Melanie's husband, uh, H or Henry, um, I mean, this this is like a $2,000 picnic table. I, I mean, it's hope you know that um, you're not getting paid for this either. Uh, and I have um, to pay for extensive <laughs> therapy, PTSD therapy. Yeah. I mean, we have no money whatsoever. We put money yeah. for all of yeah. this. No one yeah. paid us. We didn't get paid for Netflix, nothing. So nope. we've not made any money off of anything. Yeah. We're just, yeah, exactly. We're not it's reading all... any books, nothing. There's, there's Our... no, no cha-ching involved. What, what, what do you think of the people out there? Because there are a lot of charlatans out in the UFO community. For me, what they do is just dilute real stories. What, 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 what do you think of people like that without naming any names? Well, I, can think of, I can think of someone in particular, but I don't want to go there. <laughs> I, I had a list written down, but I better not. <laughs> yeah. What's your list? We're not going to be mean spirited because we don't want to, we don't want to create karma, but, um, okay, Melanie. All I know is that, um, we're not doing it. We just want to, we want history to be, we want history to be remembered for our children and our grandchildren. Sure. That's what Preserve we want. For whatever it was. It's history. This is a historical thing that happened. This isn't a, a Hollywood or a... Right. It's history. So, Melanie, being a nice person stops us from bad-mouthing the type of people that normally feature on this show. But it does seem that they're not trying to milk their experiences. And people have also asked us if we would do films, but I've, I've refused. I've said, I'm not interested. 
unless it's unless it's worthwhile and it's going to be factual. Yeah. We really don't have time to be honest <laughs> with you. It's <laughs> So hard to find time to do radio shows. I mean, yeah. I know, when I, I, I first I, met Tom, Tom was like, "Mel, would you would you be interested?" And I'm like, "I don't know, Tom." And he said, "Well, let me give you some dates. Just think about." It. And I said, "Okay, I'll think about it." And, and I did one. I I was reluctant to be honest with you. I was very reluctant to do it because it, it's something that you don't really want to talk about still. And then I did start talking about it and I did feel better after talking about it. Maybe Tom it's therapeutic. It for you. It's therapeutic. It is therapeutic. Yeah. Tom talks at length about how his whole family, particularly his younger brother, suffered bullying because of their experiences. And that wasn't really covered in Unsolved Mysteries. And there was other aspects that weren't covered. It was just a crazy time. But, you know, Unsolved could have mentioned a lot of this. They could have mentioned our restaurant. When they were filming, or about to film, um, I went out and bought a jukebox. They asked me, um, you know, could I get a jukebox? Because they were going to film in our old uh, diner. I went out and bought a jukebox. Um, they never used it. Um, what, and they made you pay for it? I paid for it. And um, I didn't get paid a cent by Unsolved, not one dime. They made a donation to my park for, you know, towards a bench, but they didn't... Uh, um, they gave me a small, I wouldn't say a small donation, but it was a decent donation towards the park. But we didn't get paid anything. But he also, I had to sign paperwork to let them film there because, it, you know, I had to, uh, you know, it's leased land, so I had to give them the okay to film. Um, but uh, they, they filmed with a, a, one of my limousines, and they were doing a reenactment with my, I guess, my father being in politics and the whole bit about how I went to the UN. Um, that was cut out. Um, there was a judge who sealed the governor's uh, citations, and it's right here. This is the actual original citation by the governor. Um, oh, wow. There, was a, there you go. Yeah, there, it was signed here by uh, uh, Titus. Yeah, there's the original letter from the Historical Society. And, um, you know, he was, uh, they filmed him in a judge's chambers and everything. That was all cut out. Um, so there was a lot that was left on the cutting room floor. I know Melanie had a lot to say that was cut out also. I guess originally they were going to do a more detailed piece, but they kind of just focused on the flight pattern, um, you know, which played it, which was important. But I, I think, um, well, at least what I hear more than anything, where the disappointment comes from, is that there were a lot of people who were witness to this, right? And yeah. so they're, te they're telling their friends who moved away, you got to see this episode because it made United States history. It's the first UFO case to be deemed historically true in America. You know. Roswell wasn't, Walton wasn't, Betty and Barney Hill weren't. They were deemed, you know, um, they were uh, recognized, but they were not officially deemed historically true. There's a big difference. They're good cases, and they're all friends of mine. But mm -hmm. what I'm getting at is that when you're sitting in Great Barrington or Sheffield and you've told your friends about this your whole life since you were this high riding a bike out of the diner, right, that, hey, it's finally going to be shown on Unsolved Mysteries, and it was recognized by state government as a true event. And they're watching it with their friends, and there's no mention of documentation anywhere. Doesn't that seem a little unfair to those people who, who are like, wait a minute, why did you leave out the most important part of this? Right? Yeah, the, the actual vindication of it. Yeah. 
I'm sure a lot of things were left out of Unsolved Mysteries purely because of time constraints, but it is a shame they didn't mention the documentation. We then go deeper into why Melanie is not talking to most of her family. So I'll tell you with this real quick too. So I was in McMinnville, Oregon, and uh, I was speaking there with Yvonne Smith and Don, Don Schmidt from Roswell. And uh, I was being interviewed by uh, Lauren Cutts, a radio personality. And, um, and he said, uh, do you know anyone else who has seen anything? And I'm like, yeah, I think, a, and it was, uh, can I mention the name or no? Can I, is it okay? I'd no? rather we don't. I, I can go a first name? You yeah, know? first name. Okay, so they, do you know Mark? And, uh, and so I uh, happened to have his number, and, uh, which is a relative, right? And uh, so um, they uh, touched base with uh, Melanie's family, and they were like over the phone. They're like, "Oh yeah, remember this? Remember that?" And they actually met, talked to your mother, and uh, and yet at the same time they weren't supporting Melanie, but they were talking to the radio personality that was with me. Like, was it eight years ago? So eight years ago, her family's interviewing and talking to me and this and Lauren Cutts, and yet at the same time, you know, having Melanie feel that uh, she was on her own out there. And so, and here I am now talking to Melanie going, I don't understand why they would do that either. I mean, that's so unfair. You well, know? they did the same thing to me when I was in bed with Lyme disease too. They said it was all in my head that it did. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Yeah. <laughs> Five years I was sick. I had a pick line for 15 months pushing a pole around and it was all in my head. I made that up too. <laughs> wow. Maybe it's not my place to say it, but Melanie's parents sound terrible. No wonder she started smoking at such a young age. Yeah, so I think uh, at the end of the day, um, I guess I people say to me, you know, do you feel uh, traumatized from this and everything? There is a part of that. But for me, I feel like uh, what we saw and what we experienced, it was a privilege. Right, Melanie, you know what I mean? It's I love like the saying, what you said to me, what you and your mom say is that we're okay. We're here. Right. Yeah. We're alive. We are survivors, and we have to move on from it. And it's and true. Part of, and part of a bigger picture. Yeah, we're, part we're of okay. Yeah. And we're okay. And, and I think of that all the time. I think we're okay. We've survived this, and we're okay. That's what I tell myself. I remember those words all the time that you and your mom say. I'm not going to go out in the field like Henry would like me to do on a full moon and call him down here. No way. <laughs> <laughs> After he has a couple of cocktails and he says, let's go out in the field. You know, you could call them down here, I bet. And I'm, I'll say, no, have another cocktail. I'm not going out in the field and calling them down here. I'm sure when you come here, he'll be saying the same thing to you, Tom. Come on, you two. Yeah. Let's go out in the field and call them down here. No. I've had well, you enough. Know, guys, this has been great, and I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Okay. Um, oh, so it's really, really late here. Um, I'm sorry. So, so uh, just wrap it up. I've got one question for you, Tom. Okay. You're in CSI Miami twice, and I heard from a friend of mine in LA that David Caruso is a bit of a dick. Is, is that true? Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I have on good authority. Matter of fact, he almost got into a, a, an argument with De Niro 
um, because uh, I guess he uh, talked down to him or something, or had uh, and uh, didn't deliver <laughs> very well. To be honest, I didn't expect such a straightforward answer to that. And on that bombshell is where we left it. I have to thank Tom and Melanie for giving up their time to be on the show. Like Unsolved Mysteries, I had to cut some things out simply because of time. We were actually talking for around two hours, so I hope I've left most of the good stuff in. Episode 35 The Berkshire UFO Incident The Epilogue So, what have we learnt this week? We learnt that the kids in 1969 Sheffield were very keen smoking enthusiasts. And, you know, we used to, uh, we had a friend that would steal cigarettes from their mom. We learned that this was witnessed by over 200 people and not 40. The 40 witnesses were when the monument was installed. There were four, about 40 witnesses from 1969 that showed up when the monument was unveiled. There was over 250 witnesses to the event. And we learned that Netflix didn't even pay them for their episode. I went out and bought a jukebox. Um, they never used it. Um, what, and they made you pay for it? I paid for it. Tom and Melanie were genuinely nice people to talk to, and I was so happy they agreed to come on the show. It was refreshing for me to talk to believable people instead of researching the usual bunch of freaks and weirdos that come to my attention. They both came across as normal people, but people that also have an incredible story that has shaped their lives ever since. A lot of people in the UFO community try to put themselves out as the central focus of the story and make out that they're somehow special, like Billy Meyer or that pervert Stan Romanek. Neither Tom nor Melanie come anywhere near to doing that. It's something that happened to them, and that's just what it is. And that's why I think they're legit. And I hope, when we're all allowed to travel again, that one day I'll be able to have a picnic on that awesome UFO table at the Monument Park. If you enjoy this podcast, then share it with your friends and let me know. Join the Facebook group and the Instagram, and you can email me at idontknowpod at outlook.com. Special thanks to our logo creator, Raymond Roel of Project Raven Creative. See all his links in the show notes. Thank you for listening, and come back next week to find out what I don't know. Things happen.